We are in chapter 11, obviously, and we are between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. We are right towards the end of the, uh, the tribulation period, what we call the Great Tribulation. And we are looking specifically at these two individuals that the, the Bible has now introduced, or John has introduced in this uh, book. <coughs> and John, if you remember, at the beginning of chapter 11, uh, gets to meet this wonderfully big, mighty angel. And the angel tells John to measure out the temple, because that's God's property, and measure the people that are worshipping inside. But he says that the, the city and the outer courts that will be trampled by the Gentiles. Now, John has measured the temple, but we don't have the results of that measurement. John then, then jumps straight into the introduction of these two witnesses. And we looked at last time the, the, the possibilities with these two witnesses and who they may be. And <clears throat> we know there are, there are a few options and many opinions about this thing. Sorry. Some people believe that these two witnesses will be Elijah or an Enoch. Others believe they will be Elijah and Moses. Others believe they will be just two spirit-empowered uh, individuals. And we looked at uh, some, some different uh, scenarios and, and we looked at the fact that Elijah had not died. Elijah had, uh, had been taken up in a whirlwind. Uh, straight into heaven, as did Enoch. And we looked at the other, the other thing about uh, Moses and the way he, he passed away, and that was a little bit of a strange thing as well because we found that when Moses passed away, there was no one to bury Moses. No one saw Moses actually die. God said that he died, and it was God that buried him in a place that no one else knew of. And then we found, found an interesting scripture in Jude where... Michael the archangel and, and Satan were disputing over the body of Moses. And that doesn't happen anywhere else or to any other individual. And we saw the, uh, the interesting um, uh, uh, thing that happened when Jesus was transfigured on the mount. When Jesus invited James, John and Peter to come up with him to the mountain while the other disciples were out uh, witnessing, Jesus was transfigured before them and they saw him glowing. They saw him in his glory and, and, and next to Jesus, do you remember who, which individuals they were? Moses and Elijah on each side. So for those particular reasons, a lot of people and probably the majority of people um, uh, believe or lean to uh, the fact that these, these two individuals are probably either Elijah and Moses, more so than, than Elijah and Enoch, um, or at least these two individuals come in their power or come with the same sort of spirit. We're going to look at these two individuals in a bit more detail now because this, this chapter gives us a fair bit of information about them. <clears throat> now, before we go on to anything else, I want to establish where these two individuals will be witnessing, where they will be prophesying. And if we go back one verse to verse 2, The angel says, But the court which is without the temple, leave out. That's outside the temple, leave it out. And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Okay, so he's setting the scene here. The holy city. 
obviously talking about Melbourne. Melbourne's a very holy city. Not exactly. The holy city. Which which city is he actually talking about? Well, go. Let's go to the end of the end of that passage. Revelation eleven thirteen. Look at verse thirteen. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, it's, this passage starts off with the, the holy city. It ends up with, the city, with, a, with an earthquake happening in this particular city. He doesn't say exactly where. But an interesting thing is, if you go back a few more verses, if there's any doubt about where we actually are, or where these two witnesses are actually going to be, go back to verse 8. And let's look at where they are killed. It says in verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, it would seem pretty clear that the city we're talking about here, the city where these two individuals are going to be, are going to be prophesying and witnessing, is, will be Jerusalem. That's where, they, that's where their ministry is, and that's where they will be killed and resurrected again. Okay? Now, it would seem that John is speaking about the city of Jerusalem, and their ministry is now confined to that area. Now, if that's true, who are these individuals focused on? Do you remember the 144,000 we spoke about a while ago? And the 144,000 were then associated with a multitude from all over the world that were saved as a result. And one of the, th one of the things that, we, we, that Scripture seemed to put together was the fact that these 144,000 sealed individuals were going to be these wonderful preachers that turned millions of people um, uh, or, or got them saved. They preached the gospel to them as a result of their preaching and their witnessing that millions of people around the world were saved. But with these two individuals that are locked into Jerusalem, who is their focus on? The Jews. Their focus is only on the Jews, not on all the, the Gentiles. Okay, So this is what we need to understand here. That at this point in time, God's program with the Jews is kicking off. It's in full swing, you might say. While the 144,000 are witnessing to the world, the two witnesses are specifically focused on the Jews. Now, an interesting side note on this passage here. Notice what it compares, what... what Jerusalem is compared to compared to Sodom and Egypt. Now, let's 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 refresh our, our, our memories here. Sodom is a, was a place of the greatest perversion and sin. Sin so severe that God had to do what to it? He obliterated it. He destroyed it with fire that came directly down from heaven. And what is Egypt like? Egypt was a place where God's people were bound in bondage, slaves to an evil king and to do his bidding. Why would... Now, Scripture, at one point, which says, calls this place the holy city. Do you remember? 
in that verse, it was called the holy city, the great city, now likens that same city to such evil places. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 13, verse 34. Listen to Jesus speaking here. Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem, the place where Jesus, the Son of God, the, the one, who was came for, one who came or was sent to save the world from sin, was crucified in. The one who was rejected at this particular place. The place where other prophets that God has sent have been killed and stoned. But yet this is the place that God says is his own. This is the place that David made the capital of Israel and that one day the Bible says Jesus will be ruling from. This place is special to God and it seems as if Jerusalem is a war zone. It seems that there's been a lot of fighting over this particular place. The reason I believe that, that Scripture likens Jerusalem to Sodom and Egypt is that the same spirit that leads people into the bondage of sin and has held Jerusalem captive so many years and has blinded the Israelites or the Jews to the gospel truth was the same spirit that inspired men to hand over Jesus to the Romans to have him crucified. The same spirit that leads to sin and the bondage of sin. When God's chosen people who will be living in Jerusalem at this time are these two witnesses, and there is an understanding that, that they will be living back in that, in that area. Remember, they were dispersed after 70 AD. They were dispersed around the world. But the scripture says in Revelation, they will be back. Jerusalem will once again be theirs. And it is, amazingly enough. And it only is because of the fact that the Jews were able to come back to their their own homeland in 1948 and have their own country. And it's only because of the subsequent wars that they were able to recapture Jerusalem again. It's only because God has allowed and God has planned for this specific time to take place. So everything's in, in, in place at this stage. For the return of Jesus. Now Jesus says, I you will not see me again. Now he's speaking to the Jews here. 
you will not see me again. And he says, your house is left to you desolate. And it was. When Jesus was rejected, crucified in 70 AD, they destroyed the temple and everything. And the Jews were scattered around the world. And Jesus very well knew that. But if you listen to his language, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, I, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? Jesus wanted to gather them under his wings, but they would not. So their house was left to them desolate. They rejected the Lord. They were blinded by the God of this world until the time Jesus says, Jesus says, You will not see me again until... Ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Mm. There's going to be a time when the people of God, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, will, will stop stoning and killing the prophets that God sends to them. And instead of stoning them and killing them, they will accept them. And that will be the time of these two witnesses. The Jews will accept them. It will be the Antichrist. It will be the beast that makes war with them, not the Jews. But what's the catalyst for the change of their heart? There will be a huge revival, a reawakening, an understanding that Jesus was the Messiah and is the Messiah by the Jews. What brings that about? Well, I believe... It's because of the work that God does through these two witnesses that there comes a revival in the hearts of the Jews. And there are two main reasons for that. One, there is a prophecy in Malachi. And I'll get you to turn there in a minute. And two, the fact that the Bible says that the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. You see, we're all Greeks, whether you like it or not. We are Greek in our thinking. We have to have all our eggs lined up and there are certain things that we understand in a logical sort of way. The Jews, on the other hand, require a sign for them to believe that the message that's being given to them is authentic. See, for, for, the, for the Greek, they have to understand the message in order to accept it. It has to make complete logical sense. It has to fit into a framework, whereas the Jew, for a Jew to believe the message is given to them, they have to see proof of the authority behind the message. Now, how does that fit with these two, these two witnesses? Well, the fact that they can perform miracles, they can call down fire from heaven, the fact that they can... They can they can uh, submit the earth to as many plagues as they like. The fact that fire can actually come under their mouths to destroy their, their enemies, fairly good signs, wouldn't you say, to the Jews? Okay, turn, turn back with me to Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, as we look at a specific prophecy about Elijah's return. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 4. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb 
for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now two points need to be made here. It says in this passage of scripture that Elijah will achieve this before the dreadful, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and dreadful day of the Lord? The great and dreadful day of the Lord is when Jesus returns to do war with the armies of the beast who are intent on, on destroying Jerusalem and everyone who has put their faith in Christ. When Jesus returns the second time, it will be to make war. And the picture that Revelation paints is not a pretty one. A lot of bloodshed. Because men have put their faith in another God. A God who is intent on defying the God of, of heaven. And who has inspired men to do so throughout the ages. And this is the culmination of that. So Elijah will achieve what? What is Elijah going to do before the great and dreadful day of the Lord? It says that he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. Now what does that mean? What does the heart of the fathers to the children mean? It simply means that the fathers will desire once more for their children to have a knowledge of the Lord and his truth, to teach their children about God's love, while the children will once again have a desire to learn the truth from their fathers, to learn that truth from their fathers and respect the God of their fathers, to once again respect and receive the truth from their spiritual fathers, especially as they came down to from prophets such as Elijah, and Moses, the New Testament writers like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the children will once again desire to learn not only from their earthly fathers and look up to their earthly fathers, but their spiritual fathers, the ones whom God has inspired to write his word. Rather than rejecting the truth from their fathers or of their fathers as old and out of date, their desire will be to learn once again from their fathers and what God has done through his own son. Now, just let me paint a picture for you. The disjoint between parents and children today, would you say it's a small one or a big one? Okay, no time in the history of man has the division between the children parents and grandparents being so great. Never in history, never in history have children had less respect for their parents, for authority, for tradition. And there's a particular reason for that. It's, it's because the devil has been able to infiltrate. The devil has been able to corrupt that which is 
and to make people believe certain things that the world wants them to believe very easily. And he's done a very good job of it. Today, it's almost taken for granted that the younger generation view the older, the parents and the, and the grandparents as old, out of date, with nothing, to, with nothing they can offer me and I need to find my own way in life. Isn't that true? And unfortunately, the majority of the world has parents and grandparents have almost thrown up their hands and said, well, we can't. These kids are unteachable. These kids don't need to learn anything more from us. There's nothing I can offer them. They've almost uh, uh, waved the white flag. This is very much the case in this world, especially in the, our Western culture. The old ways are seen as useless, while continuing changes and new ways are seen as better, more efficient, more fun. If we look at the church specifically, we can look at specific things such as music and the way and the comparison of, of worship in the churches 50 years ago and the comparison today. We can look at the Bible versions that people read. Bible versions are becoming more and more... Are they, are they, are they becoming more and more accurate? Is that, is that the desire of Bible translators? No. They're becoming more and more supposedly easy to read. Is that right? So more and more truth is actually lost because they want the average person to be able to read the Bible but never get the average person to be able to understand what the truth is. So they, they're turning God's word more and more into comic books. Soon there'll be pictures in them, I think. What about the type of clothing that's acceptable in churches these days? I've seen some things on TV which would make your eyes roll up. The type of language that's used. Children today have such disgusting language. And it's acceptable. The sort of stuff you hear on the radio and on the, on the news each day about what teens actually do and normally do with mobile phones, computers, internet and the like. If you compare that to what was acceptable behaviour even 20 years ago, it's like night and day. There is a huge, huge change and things are progressively getting worse and unfortunately rapidly getting worse. I even, I, I even sense, I even know that the reasons that people go to church today has changed dramatically from what it was a few decades ago. People go to church today for anything they can get out of church. And the pastors are fueling that from the pulpit because they've changed their philosophies as well. People go to church these days for the wonderful reasons of, let's have a look, um, social networking, having a good social support around me. You know, for when I'm, when I'm going through difficult times, I've got a good support base around me. 
Now, I know that's, that's the number one priority that's mentioned in the Bible about why people go to church, isn't it? I go to church because they have a wonderful music worship service. And I get really revved up when I go. I get excited and I cry and I, they're a wonderful... I go to church because there are wonderful programs in the church and we get to learn all these different things and how to do them. I go to church because I can fulfil my potential as a, as a person in church. I go to church because there's a wonderful program for my children. My children just love going to church. They love the, the things they're taught. They love all the, the crafts and the markets and the things that, that they're involved in. That's a fantastic reason that I go to church. I go to church because... Um, uh, I'm looking for a, a husband for my daughter. I'm going to church because I'm looking for a, uh, a wife for my son. I go to church because, you know, there's a lot of, lot of people the same age as me. And, and we, get to, we get to spend a lot of time together. I've made a lot of good friends over there. I hear this all the time. Would you have heard those explanations 50 years ago about why people go to church? I don't think so. Especially amongst the IB churches, independent Baptist churches. But today you hear it. I submit to you that the church has fallen for the lies of the world. The lies that have been fed to this generation by the media and advertisers those who dictate to the world what makes a person happy. See, the devil tells, the, tells the, um, the, the educated people and tells the advertisers and media people or whatever, this is what makes people happy. So this is what we have to give them for them to be happy. So then what the church does is they look at, look at those things and then we come up with all these surveys. Why do people stay in church? Have you, need, have you noticed those surveys? You know, out of a, a thousand churches... That have been that have been um, surveyed. We have found that the reason the, the people stay in, the, in in certain churches because of these particular elements: great worship service, you know, a fun time after it, having a great cuppa together, all that sort of stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong in and of in and of those things themselves, but it is wrong when they're your focus. I've heard it said that the church always seems to be two steps behind the world. Two steps, not one. Because one would be too close. So they stay two steps behind the world just in case they think we're exactly like the world. But the church has been following the world progressively. It has. And where the world decides to go, the church soon follows after. This is the problem that we're having in our churches today. You see that the the leaders in churches these days have decided that the more important thing is for the church to become acceptable to the world. And it's more important for us to get people in those doors over there and to make them feel comfortable about what they're coming into and excited so they come back the next day and the next day. So we have to offer them relaxed atmospheres, uh, low standards in, in, in everything, 
Um, we have to make them comfortable with the music and want to make them want to come back with music and Bible versions and everything else. We don't want to we don't want to inundate them with too much scripture, do we? Because it might overwhelm them. They can't understand, and then they may not come back because. And we don't want to be preaching about the truth because it may offend them. We don't want to be talking about the blood of Jesus anymore because to talk about blood, that's terrible. People may not come back. They might not understand that. To talk about the cross and sacrifice is too hard for people to take these days. So we'll cut that out of it as well. To talk against sin, we'll take that out as well because that may offend a few other people who are living in sin and we don't want to offend them. Otherwise, they'll stop coming back to church too. So we have this spiralling situation where the church has decided it's more important to get people in the doors and sitting in the pews but in order to do that I have to stop preaching that book and in their efforts to do that they have also put a wedge between the parents and their children. We need to see this teaching for the lie that it is. We need to be aware of what's happening in this world and in the churches. Our desire as parents should always be for our children to know the truth and we shouldn't be scared to teach it. We should never be scared to teach the truth from the pulpit. We should never compromise God's word because when we begin to compromise God's word, we compromise ourselves. We sacrifice our children on the altar of Moloch. We sacrifice them. Our generation has done that. The reason there are so many empty chairs here is that people would prefer to sacrifice their children for their own whims and their own ease. Yeah, Christianity is not an easy game. It's not an easy life. God didn't say it was going to be easy. In fact, it's getting harder and harder to live as a Christian. Expect it. Expect more persecution. Expect to feel left out. Expect to be made to feel like you are odd. Because the more you say, I believe in this Bible, the more they're going to tell you you are a nutcase. The more you stand on God's truth, the more you're seen as someone who just is nitpicking. I was having a conversation with Brother Eddie uh, yesterday and, and this thing rings so true. A person cannot, cannot any longer say that this is the truth. Because our society has been brainwashed into believing that everyone's truth is only for themselves. And I have no right to tell anyone else, brother, this is the truth. You know, if you're living together with someone else without being married, brother, that's a sin. 
No, I can't say that because you know his truth is for him, my truth is for me, and we can't tell anyone what the truth is anymore. Otherwise, we are bigots. Otherwise, we are the sort of people that people look as like fundamentalists. Things will continually get worse. Until the Lord returns and takes us to be with him, things will continue to get worse. And one of the areas that gets worse and one of the areas that we notice is getting worse is the relationship between parents and children. And our society is driving a wedge further and further between those two. What do churches do? What do churches naturally do as part of their fellowship? They segregate every different age group. Think about it. They segregate the younger from the older at every possible stage. What, what possible purpose is there for that? Is it because that the, the teenagers are able to teach each other and reinforce each other? No. Because most teenagers don't know the truth. Most teenagers are totally confused about everything. So let's lump them all together. Let's take them away from the influence of the older people in the church, the ones who are more mature, have been through that, just in case they may learn something from the older ones and be influenced by their, by their maturity. And let's take, away, let's take away the children from the older just in case they might get energised by seeing young people getting saved. You know, there needs to be, there needs to be a, a coming together of ages. If you look at the Bible, the Bible clearly teaches the older women to teach the younger women, the fathers to teach their children. There needs to be a coming together for that rather than a segregation. But we find the segregation, the common rule in all the churches these days. And this is what happens. This is what Elijah is going to do. Somehow, God is going to use these two witnesses to preach in such a way that the fathers and the children are going to, be, are going to come together. Now, this is primarily to the Jews, remember. The Jews don't have the advantage of believing in Christ. Is that correct? Is it an advantage to believe in Christ? Is it an advantage to know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour and for the parents to believe in him? Is that correct? Okay, well the Jews don't have that. We often, we often speak about in marriages that Christ is the foundation of the relationship and where the foundation is strong, where both husband and wife have a strong faith in Christ and have a love for God, then the relationship, does that get worse or better? It gets better. And there's a, there's, a, there's a particular reason why it gets better. It gets better because you're both looking in the same direction. You are together in, in, in your love for something. Tell me to Matthew chapter 17, verse 10.
Look at what Jesus says about Elijah. Matthew 17.10 says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must, come, must first come? Verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. Now, Jesus then goes on to say, Well, look, Elias did come in a sense. It was John the Baptist, and they've already done with him what they've wanted. But there's a sense where Jesus is saying, Elias will come. And then it says, look how he finishes. And he will restore all things. The restoration that will be done through Elijah will be to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. But the main point here is that Jews will be once again restored back into the body of Christ. They will be restored and grafted back into the vine. They'll be restored once again into having a relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Turn to Romans chapter 11 verse 23. As I, just, I, just, I want to make this point very clear. Romans 11 verse 23. Romans 11.23 says, And they also, that's the Jews, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if they were cut out of the olive tree, which is, for if, sorry, if thou, which is us, were cut out of an olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which by the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, They shall come out of Zion, the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. We were, as Gentiles, or the Gentiles were grafted into the olive tree, which is connected to Christ. Christ is the reason that the graft is able to continue to grow and flourish. Because we draw on him. Unfortunately, Israel, because of their own belief, were partly cut out. Now, there are some Jews that are saved, but most aren't. So they've been cut out, the Gentiles have been put in, and the Bible teaches that when the, the fullness of the Gentiles is reached, when the full number is ready, God then grafts Israel back in, which means they're saved as well. Gentile and Jew both joined once again to the same vine together. That's the mystery. The mystery is that God is able to make of, of two one. And we have been made one in Christ. And that will culminate when the Jews once again turn back to Jesus or turn back to God and accept the gospel message. Look at one more, look at the next verse, verse 28. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies 
for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. You see, for the moment, the Jews are enemies of the gospel. Not of us necessarily, but of the gospel. They don't like the gospel, they've rejected the gospel. But Paul says again, there's going to come a time when they accept the gospel and God has not given up on them. He says, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. You know something? God never reneges on a promise. And God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses and the rest of them, even going back to Adam, that he will restore all things. And the Jews have been specifically chosen for the purpose of bringing this deliverer, this Messiah into the world through their lineage. And it was the Jews that were entrusted to write and keep God's word for us. It was the Jews were also entrusted to preach the gospel to the whole world, which they didn't do. And they didn't recognise the Messiah when he came. But because of their disobedience, you and I have an opportunity, which we didn't have, to be made one with them. So, for the moment, they're enemies. But God is faithful to his promises. That's why he's never given up on, on Israel. And he, he won't. Until his plan is complete, until they are brought in again and grafted back in, God will not rest. Now let's get back to the two witnesses. 11, uh, 11, uh, Revelation 11 verse 4. It says that these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now this is a, a, an allusion to Zechariah chapter 4 verse 11. Let's turn back to Zechariah just so, so we get understanding of what John is speaking about here. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. Chapter 4, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 11 to 14. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, situation. What's, what's this speaking about? This is speaking about a specific time in Israel's history when they were trying to rebuild the temple. And there was a lot of resistance happening at that stage. And people were giving up. They were going to stop building the temple. God wanted it rebuilt and these guys were just about to fall over. But there were two individuals, Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest that God was working through to inspire the nation to once again get back and continue working to rebuild the temple. Joshua and Zerubbabel were the, Zerubbabel was the civic leader, Joshua was the high priest, had the obstacle of motivating the people. The people were giving up. 
God sent a vision and showed them this is what it's going to be like. It is going to be done. And they saw in in the sanctuary in heaven oil flowing from a tree to a branch through pipes to a reservoir to keep the candle burning, to keep the lamp burning. That's a wonderful illustration, isn't it? A candle stops burning without the oil. The oil is the fuel to keep it going. And God said that he would use these two to provide that oil for the lamp to keep burning. Now we find with the two witnesses that these are also called the two lamps and the two olive trees. God is going to be doing something similar here to what was happening back in Zechariah's days. This is where we get the passage. If you look at verse 6, where God says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, or saith the Lord of hosts. It wasn't, God was simply saying, it's not going to be by men's efforts, it's not going to be by their power, it's going to be by my power that the temple will be rebuilt. And it's the same at this particular stage in history during the Revelation period, during the Tribulation period, that God will use these two individuals who he will empower. And it's not by their power, it's by God's power through the Holy Spirit that Israel will once again reawaken and will turn back to the Lord. And it will be at a difficult time once again because during this time, they were facing a lot of opposition to rebuild the temple they were about to give up. While during this time, the opposition is even more because the Antichrist is about or wants to destroy Israel. So these two witnesses are there not only to help convert but also to encourage the believers to continue to fight on. They're empowered by the olive oil which is representative normally of the Holy Spirit to continue. Now just to clarify something the two witnesses these two witnesses do their prophesying. You know how it says that they will prophesy for 1,260 days? Well, 1,260 days is equal to 42 months, which is equal to three and a half years. Now, we know that tribulation is a seven-year period split up into two lots of three and a half years. The first three and a half years, relatively peaceful. The Antichrist signs a covenant, signs an agreement with them, they get to rebuild their temple, they get to uh, offer sacrifices again, and then halfway through, he jumps in and says, stop your sacrificing, I'm God myself. And he sets himself up as God in the temple. I believe it's from that point that the two witnesses start to prophesy against him and about the gospel. It's at that point, because we know it's during a difficult period that these two witnesses do their prophesying and witnessing. And I believe it's another reason that it's during the second half of the tribulation is because these two individuals are, are empowered like no other individuals have been empowered before. They have, they're attacked by the Antichrist, by the, by the beast, and they are able to devour their enemies with fire. They're able to smite the earth with all types of plagues. Well, if they weren't being attacked, they wouldn't be doing that, would they? So it's during the second half. Now, we call that, that half 
the great tribulation for the, for the Jews. If you go back to Daniel, Daniel speaks of 42 weeks, speaks of three and a half years, and speaks of 1,260 days, and it's always in reference to the last three and a half years, never the first. So this is the time of the Jews' awakening. This is the time. So that's just a, a point I just wanted to make. The time that these two witnesses come about, or these, these two witnesses prophesy during a terrible time for the Jews, it will be the worst time in their history. Worse than the Holocaust days. But God will raise up two witnesses for them. I'm reminded, I'm reminded of when Jesus... Do you remember that Jesus sent his disciples two by two? And he's, where did he send them? Did he send them to, to the world? He sent them to the cities of Israel, right? And they were to go out two by two. And he also empowered them to do what? To perform miracles. But what happened when they came back? When the disciples came back, and they came back all excited because they said, ah, we were able to do all these wonderful miracles, and we did this and we did that, and we've been casting out demons and, and all this sort of stuff there. And, and Jesus says, don't, don't get, be so excited about demons being cast out or, or doing the miraculous be happy more that your light your your name has been written in the book in heaven the book of life and the disciples still didn't get it because at one stage there were some that rejected christ and john and james say god uh, uh, jesus do you want us to send down fire from heaven and destroy them and jesus says to them You've got no idea what you're talking about. I don't know you do. Get away from me. But these two have that ability. These two have been sent, just like, you know, Jesus sent those two disciples two by two. These two have been sent directly from heaven to witness, to be the final two witnesses to the Jewish nation. They will have the same powers that the, the apostles had, and they will be accepted. They will turn the, the hearts of the fathers, the children, to the, back to the Lord himself. They won't be doing it by their might. They'll be doing it by God's power. Man has a weakness. One of our weaknesses is that we tend to rely on our own strengths, don't we? We tend to look at man or the physical more than we see the spiritual. It's hard to see the spiritual. It's difficult. We, we, we like to rely on this. It's easier to rely on this than it is to rely on God. So men often have a tendency to fall back on their own abilities and their own powers. And it's a bit like when, when Peter, James and John saw Jesus transfigured on the mount. And they, know, they knew Jesus was the son of God. They knew it was, he was the Messiah. He was the one through, through whom everything was going to happen. That when they saw Moses and Elijah, what was Peter tempted to do? We'll build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah and one for Jesus. Why? Because it's so easy to rely back on men again rather than it is to rely on God. It's so easy to, to look back at ourselves and say, oh, I'm doing that. We're, we're, we're able to, to achieve this and to achieve that. And you know something? Unless, unless the Lord builds the house, we labour in vain. So that's why when Peter made that wonderful suggestion that God then 
put them to sleep. <laughs> he, puts, he covered them with a dark cloud. Moses and Elijah disappeared and God said, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Listen to him. Follow him. Look to him. He's the one who is our strength. He's the one who is our inspiration. He's the one. He's all we need. But we often have a, 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 a tendency to rely on ourselves. Hands up who has saved themselves here. Anyone was able to save themselves and get themselves into heaven? None of you? Come on. Surely there must be one of you who believes that you've saved yourself. None of you can save yourselves. All right, you can't save yourself. Uh, who's, who's making sure that by their efforts they're able to stay in heaven? None of you? You mean you can't sustain it yourself? Come on, you were saved by someone else. Surely you can keep it going by yourself. No, you're all very wise. The problem is, even though we don't put up our hands, often we fall into the trap of trying to do it by ourselves. Often when we go through difficult times, we struggle with sin, we, we, we try to go, we, try to, we, we find difficulties in our lives, who do we rely on? It's so easy just to rely on ourselves or to rely on other people or to rely on our money or to rely on, on our education or to rely on so many other things. It's so easy just to, just to plant my, my faith in something else, something I can see. It's more difficult to, to put your faith in Christ and, and the Lord who you can't see to get you through difficult times, to give you understanding, to give you peace to give you the joy, even in the midst of difficult times. Are we trying to run or run this race with our own effort today? Think about that. Are you or I relying on our own strength to win this walk? How much do I actually believe that Jesus will see me through and is with me every step of the way? And you know how you can tell? When the first sign of trouble comes, what do you do? When, when trouble comes, how do you normally react? Because if you react by falling over, then you've got a problem with your faith. If you react by immediately running to something else. You see, people, the people of the world, how do they react with, with problem times? They react by running to alcohol. They react by running to counsellors, to friends, to families, to every, everything else. The Bible says that when we have troubled times, yes, you have family and you have friends and you have other resources around you, but the primary one you, you turn to with difficult times is the Lord. Do we do that? Or is our faith in Elijah and Moses? Is our faith in, in a pastor? So many times the devil attacks the pastor of a church and because people have their faith so much in the pastor, so much in a person, that when the devil attacks that person, their faith is destroyed. Because it's not the person at all. That is the foundation of a person's life. It's Christ himself that's our foundation. So even though you may be the last person standing, think of it. If you're in a situation where you're the last person standing in this church, if everyone else walked away, 
and gave up, could you stand? Could you stand because of your faith in Jesus? You should. There's a source of oil, there's a source of life that only comes from Jesus and he will make sure that a person has enough energy, has the desire, has everything he needs to continue the race right to the end. We need to rely on him for that life. Have you claimed the promises of God today? Do you believe in him today? God bless you.